Clubhouse. Do you love Christmas? Do you love Christmas movies? Do you wish it was Christmas time year round? Well, do we have a podcast for you? Welcome to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Whoa, 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 Clark. We're keeping this show family-friendly. Where's the Tylenol? Welcome to week eight of the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're talking about the 1990 Stone Cold Christmas classic, Home Alone. (laughs) Home Alone was written by John Hughes with actually an uncredited but very important, and we'll talk about in a little bit, rewrite by Chris Columbus. And it was directed by Chris Columbus in only his third director, uh, director, uh, directorship, only the third movie that he, how do you say in only the third movie he ever directed, he directs Home Alone. So, like, we know him now as this big family movie guy. Uh, yeah. Maybe, you know, with the first two Harry Potter movies probably being the biggest thing on his resume. But back in 1990, not so much. Not, not so much. so much. Before we get into this movie and how it was made and, and talking about all the great Christmassy themes in it. What is your history with this movie? Do you remember seeing this movie way back in 1990? Is this a is this a staple in the in your house during Christmas time every year? So I would have been a wee one for Home Alone. And yes, I do remember going to the theaters to see it. And I do remember watching it lots. And, and I don't restrict this one to Christmas time. I love Home Alone all the time. I think it's super funny. It it hits me and I I mean I I chortle every time. Mike, how about you? Uh it, one, it I think it works any time of the year because it holds up really well. It's a really good movie on top of being I think a really good Christmas movie. So I agree with you. I think this is a movie you could sit down with your kids at any time and and have a good time with. I very very much remember watching this movie in the theaters. I actually dreamed about the movie theater where I would have gone to see this as a kid in Queens last night because I knew we were getting ready to record this. And so, yeah, I had a dream about the quartet in in Flushing, Queens, which (laughs) there's no reason I would have a dream about that theater. Yeah, but so I remember seeing this on the big screen and with the paint cans. And there are so many things that work so well in this movie on the big screen in the movies. I feel bad for people who never get to experience it that way because I think it's pretty, pretty awesome. Absolutely. Let's dive into this one. Sure. So like I said, this movie was written by John Hughes, who is this impresario of the 80s. I mean, think of every I mean, he is the founder of the Brat Pack. He's the one who's responsible for uh, Lord uh, Breakfast Club. He is responsible for 16 Candles. He is responsible for he wrote National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation which is actually where the story really begins for Home Alone. Chris Columbus directs uh, Ventures in Babysitting in 1987, his his directorial debut. He had written That's Gremlins. That's another one of your very big favorites. It's, it's maybe, it's definitely my top three favorite movies from the 80s. I am a big, big fan of Adventures in Babysitting. Uh, yeah, it turns out John Hughes, Chris Columbus, and me, we could all be friends. I mean, John, <laughs> John Hughes sadly has passed away. But if in the 80s, when I was 12, when this movie came out, we could have all been good friends. Oh. Yeah, so he so Chris Columbus directs uh, Adventures 
in babysitting. Then his next film is Heartbreak Hotel, which is a complete bomb. And and he's basically sure he's ruined his career of ever directing another movie again. But he had a pretty good direct, uh, screenplay writing career. He wrote Gremlins. He wrote another movie that I'm blanking on that was very popular. Um, so he was doing okay, but he really <laughs> wanted to get into directing. John Hughes reaches out to him and says, listen, I wrote this movie. It's National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I want you to direct it. Chris Columbus, initial pick to direct that movie. He wow. uh, starts, uh, they start pre-production on the movie. He meets Chevy Chase. And Chevy Chase is such a difficult person to work for. I have to remember that we can't curse on this podcast. Chris Columbus is like, I can't do this. I'm not going to be able to do this movie. I don't like this guy. This guy treats me like garbage. I cannot do this movie. And rather than stick it out, and, and put himself through that meat grinder, he calls and he calls John Hughes. And John Hughes, before he even says anything, Caroline, he tells Chris Columbus, don't do this movie. It's not going to go well for you. And Chris Columbus is like, thank you. Let him <laughs> off the hook. He says, listen, I wrote two scripts last weekend. Because John Hughes apparently from Friday to Sunday would just write screenplays. That's what yeah. he did. Yeah. Crazy. Is that nuts? Nuts. So like nuts. he wrote this entire movie on a weekend. That's so nuts. He go he goes to Chris Columbus. I wrote two movies last weekend. You can have your pick. I'll let you direct either of them. The second of the two scripts is Home Alone. Chris Columbus loves Christmas. That's what attracted him to uh, vacation, Christmas vacation initially. He loves Christmas. He loves Christmas themes. So he takes the script. He's like, I'm going to do this one. He takes the script and he does a rewrite of it, uh, which you know, John Hughes is John Hughes. You don't rewrite John Hughes's movies, but he actually takes it kind of in stride and he gives notes to Chris Columbus on his rewrite. And that's how we get to the kind of movie that we have. Now, why is it important, Caroline? Because John Hughes's original script for Home Alone is very broad comedy, very boisterous, right? This is the guy that brought us Uncle Buck only the year before. And it doesn't have any of the real heart that this movie kind of became known for, I think, or one Do of you the know things. who it specifically doesn't have in it. Who doesn't it have in it? You tell us. It doesn't have old man Marley in it. It doesn't have old man Marley in it. That means How it doesn't crazy have. Is it, does, that? it doesn't have that church scene. It doesn't have all all of the. I mean, he is like the whole reason why Kevin has this whole moment. The pre midnight mass church scene that Kevin and old man Marley have together, I think is kind of the theme of this movie. It really becomes what this movie is about. And I think it's one of the things that makes this a Christmas movie without old man Marley. Kevin doesn't have that whole arc. And while this may still qualify as a Christmas movie, I think it would be much, I think it would be on much less firmer ground as a Christmas movie without all of that. Don't you agree? Yeah. He gives Kevin the confidence to, to go and protect his house. He really does. He really does. And just the idea of family, you know, in a lot of ways, you and I were talking about this right before we started recording. This went over my head as a kid, but Marley is obviously a, a reference to Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, which anyone who listened to our Muppet Christmas Carol podcast episode will know. And I think in a lot of ways, Marley serves as kind of a stand-in for the ghosts in A Christmas Carol, where they show Ebenezer Scrooge Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas future, I think Marley serves kind of as like a as a cautionary tale for what could happen to Kevin if he doesn't make things right with his family and try to be a better a better participant in his family life, which is a lot to put on an eight year old, but I think is also really important. <laughs> and I think it, it I think it wakes Kevin up to that fact. 
I really enjoyed getting to watch Home Alone on this YouTube version of Home Alone this time, where I was listening to the commentary of both Chris Columbus and <laughs> Macaulay Culkin. It was so fun to listen to his like vibe for this movie in terms of like, first of all, like that whole writing with John Hughes. Like apparently John Hughes is a complete night owl. So he'd have to show up over there at like 9 p.m. to just begin. And he wouldn't leave there till like 3, 4 in the morning and then have to be on set at like 8 a.m. And this is just like how John Hughes works. I thought that was fascinating. And we do another podcast that is decorating the set. And so I love looking at sets and I love looking at how they they weave in different holidays. We've talked about this a lot on, on that show, actually. And one of the things that I thought was really cool about this, and Chris Columbus talked a lot about it, was how he wanted to make Christmas be in that house, but like year round. So like, if you look in the background, the wallpaper was like red and green, but it's like a muted red and green. And so there's all these parts of the house that's not necessarily like garland and, you know, Christmas lights and all these things, but Instead, it's like these layered red, Mm -hmm. greens, and golds that make the house just feel super warm and really inviting. I love that kind of stuff. And he said he was inspired by great expectations, actually. Interesting. The red and green is something I noticed a lot on this watch of the movie. I realize I haven't actually watched this movie in a long time from start to finish. But as I was watching it, it all came back to me where uh, like, you could quote the line right before the actor says it. That was my experience while watching this, getting ready for for this. but I realize I don't think I've actually watched this movie and not for attention, not for taking like, you know, looking at details right, in a very long notes. time. Yeah, but the green and red, it's it's almost subliminal in mm-hmm. its usage. And and it I think it really does reinforce the Christmasness of it, which was Chris Columbus's like really main thrust here is he really wanted to make a Christmas movie. Well, and even down to the wardrobe, like the people were wearing reds and greens and yellows and things that would remind you of Christmas. And I just love that. His little pajama set. He's got the robe and the pajamas are green and red. Oh, he's adorable. Let's actually talk about family, though, because I want to play this clip. This is the church scene I was talking about. And and let's let's jump in on the conversation after we listen to this. I'm kind of upset about it because I really like my family. Even though sometimes I say I don't. Sometimes I even think I don't. Do you get that? I think so. How you feel about your family is a complicated thing. Especially with an older brother. Deep down, you always love them. But you can forget that you love them. And you can hurt them and they can hurt you. And that's not just because you're young. You want to know the real reason why I'm here right now? Sure. I came to hear my granddaughter sing. And I can't come and hear her tonight. You have plans? No. I'm not welcome. At church? Oh, you're always welcome at church. I'm not welcome with my son. Years back, before you and your family moved on the block, I had an argument with my son. How old is he? Well, he's grown up. We lost our tempers. And I said I didn't care to see him anymore. He said the same. And we haven't spoken to each other since. If you miss him, why don't you call him? I'm afraid if I call him, he won't talk to me. How do you know? I don't know. I'm just afraid he won't. No offense, but aren't you a little old to be afraid? You can be a little old for a lot of things. You're never too old to be afraid. 
I let that clip run as long as I did because I love the end, which has nothing to do with family, but the idea that you're never too old to be afraid, I think is something that a lot of people need to hear more in their life. You know, if you have trouble with your feelings and that's why I let it play. The idea that how you feel about your family is a complicated thing. Who doesn't identify with that, Caroline? <laughs> right. Especially at Christmas time. I actually was just doing this like stress evaluation paperwork with, with one of my kiddos who's taking a health class and they make you do it. One of the things actually says holiday Christmas events is one of the stress things. Wow. And cl- like, But it's like death of a parent. Christmas is the next one. And you're like, what? But it's true. It it is stressful. Christmas is stressful. Family is stressful. And then you have this whole backdrop of this family getting ready for this giant family vacation, which is very stressful. There is so much in this movie that is identifiable and relatable for people. You know, you and I uh, were talking during our Kiss Kiss Bang Bang episode last week about how that movie lacked a lot of lacked all of the themes that we look for in Christmas movies. And we talked about family and dealing with your family and being with your family and everything that that's in that's entailed in that. This movie is all about family and what you're willing to do to defend it and how important it is. And even when you maybe don't like them or you're in the moment, you are having a problem with them. At the end of the day, you're going to miss them if they're not there. I think this is an especially poignant year for this for us mm. to be talking about this movie because, you know, lots of times people are dragging their feet. They don't want to go to the Christmas at their parents' house and do all that. And this Christmas, because of COVID stuff, a lot of people were not able to be with their family. And I think they had their Kevin McAllister kind of moment of like, I, you know, I, I love my family even when I like am like having a hard time and like I miss them. I, I wanted to be away from them, but it turns out I don't want to be away from them. Right. I mean, look at the arc that Kevin goes through here. I mean, he does the fantastic eyebrow waggle when he says, I made my family disappear. I made my family disappear. And it sounds great in the moment, right? His wishes come true. This this magical thing has happened, right? Which is another of these Christmas movie things that we're looking for. There's there's magic here, right? He's made a wish. It's a very big moment, right? Where he has this fight with his mother. It's kind of like when uh, the character in Big is is making the wish at the Zoltar machine. And then he wakes up in the morning and the thing has come true. His family has disappeared. It's just three short days where he's making bargains with uh, the Santa Claus, the Santa Village Santa Claus. You know, I'll give up all my presents. I just want my family back. You know, mm. it's yeah, and, and I mean, yeah, he's he's a little kid, but he's this old soul little kid. And so I think it makes it relatable. It's not just something you could chalk up to. Well, he's a dumb kid. And what do kids know? No, man. I mean, it sounds good in theory, but go go some days without the people you love most. I think most people are going to find that it doesn't it's it's a very grass is greener on the other side kind of feeling. Let's jump into our casting, Mike, because this actually has a pretty layered cast. Lots of faces I recognized. Yeah, well, let's start with Kevin McAllister himself, Macaulay Culkin. I mean, this was not his first movie, but this was certainly his breakout movie. John Hughes actually wrote this movie with him in mind because he had written uh, Uncle Buck, in which Macaulay Culkin was the year before, and was really impressed with him and really liked the idea of working with a nine-year-old. You know, he, he, he has said in an interview he had never had a movie that featured a kid carrying the film. He was like, why not Macaulay Culkin? He's got the chops for it. And so really wrote this role with Macaulay Culkin in mind. 
And he really does. Like, you know, there there was some actual improvisational work that that old Macaulay was doing that I give him like tons of credit. One of my favorite things and one of the most memorable little scenes is when he's like he's like kneeling on the floor and it's the keep the change you filthy animal. But he like mouths sit, it. Like, yeah. Yeah. He like. Yeah. How do you say like lip syncs it? Right. Yep. Right. He totally does. That's totally improvised. He wasn't supposed to do that. And even like when I was watching this little thing, like they started laughing because you could tell he's like about to start laughing after he does it because it wasn't part of the scene. He just did it you know and like they cut it right before he started laughing stuff like that i think is like that's why this kid gets the movie man he gets the title after the pink can scene right and you're dealing with joe pesci and daniel stern two megastars even at this point i mean daniel stern is pretty well known you have wonder years and a bunch of movies that he had done city slickers is about to come out the next year and joe pesci is joe pesci he's he's acting with these guys and he sits down after he hits him with the pink can he says are you ready to give up yet are you thirsty for more that's an improvised line. That's an yeah. improvised line. This little kid that he was nine years old comes up with on the spot. Come on. <laughs> he, he used to. It, the, they, they kept saying what a ham he was, that he was just like ready to, to just ham it up. It's interesting you speak about ham because oh. Joe, Joe, I, I know, because <laughs> ham is delicious. So Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern, who play the Wet Bandits, uh, Harry and Marv, neither of them were particularly impressed with this movie. There, there's, a, there's a whole side of people in this movie yes. who were convinced this movie was not going to do well. And that they were all just kind of spinning their wheels in a, in a stinker. And also that none of them could understand what they were doing being cast in this children's movie. I mean, I did not put it in into my brain that Joe Pesci had just come off of Goodfellas and Raging Bull. And this is yeah. his next film. And he's like, what am I doing here? What yeah. is this? And he's about to do Casino, right? I mean, it's it's true. Uh, so uh, while everyone and their mother seem to have been considered and or auditioned for the role of Harry, Joe Pesci, who gets the role, he actually finds it a struggle not to curse on set. He has to be pulled aside and be like, "You're this is a family movie. You can't <laughs> F this and F that. There's a great, there's a great interview Chris Columbus gives uh, where he talks about how Joe Pesci pulled him aside and said, listen, when I get a script, when I get a script and it's not written by Martin Scorsese, I read through the script and I have to insert mentally the F word after every third or fourth word or else I can't read the thing. You know, yeah. so if it's he, the interview the, says, <laughs> if it's, you know, a good day, Mr. Anderson, how are you? In his mind, it's, uh, you know, good day, you effing moron. Like, what's going on? You know, like he has to insert curse words into everything. So this movie was a real, real struggle for him. And and Macaulay talked a lot about how, like, I mean, he was not a warm and fuzzy, like, behind the scenes either. It's not like he was, like, a fun, nice guy. Like, he is was a stern guy who didn't really want to be there. Now, Joe Pesci's side of that argument is that he intentionally stayed away from Macaulay Culkin on set because he wanted the the performance to come off as that he was a real meanie. He has come out and said that he was impressed at how good an actor and how professional Macaulay Culkin was. He, he said he was a nine-year-old, but with like an old man, an old man trapped in a nine-year-old's body. But he, he intentionally w- stayed away from him because he wanted to be perceived as a mean guy by this little kid. Because of their sure, scenes together. sure, 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 sure. <laughs> <laughs> Easy to say after the fact when the movie's successful and you acted like a grump on set. But he also grabbed what the assistant director by the scruff of his neck and dragged him to the producer's office and complained about the 7 a.m. call times that he was being given because Joe Pesci apparently likes to play golf in the morning and does not want to show up to set before 9 a.m. So he had a real problem. So, yeah, maybe, yeah, you know. <laughs> he, yeah. So maybe, maybe his demeanor wasn't all just about, you know, trying to be in the moment as actor. a wet bandit. <laughs> 
exactly. Maybe not. Maybe I'm not. Yeah. So so <laughs> so so Daniel Stern and Joe Pesci both are reported allegedly anyway. They decide to give the over the top performances that they have, not try and do the roles with any kind of subtlety because they were convinced it was a stinker anyway. So why not go for it? Which is kind of kind of crazy. But imagine if they had been more reserved. I don't think it would have hit as hard or or worked as well. In that commentary, they also said that the Wet Bandits was actually a Daniel Stern little improvisational moment. I say I did not know that. That's a great little. That's a great there little fact. Well, he did a lot of stuff. He did a lot of like little moments that where he wanted to do it in certain ways, and I mean, like he actually was like assertive with like what he wanted. While a lot of people were considered uh, for Joe Pesci's role. Uh, Joe Pesci's role. I mean, uh, Robert De Niro and John Lovitz were like two really big considerations. Robert De Niro is interesting. I think actually Robert De Niro probably brings an energy in 1990 very similar to Joe Pesci. But John Lovitz in a woof, SNL's John Lovitz. Yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. Yeah, I, that's See, I think the- you need that element of like kind of like gutter rat that I don't think that you get with De Niro. Like you have to get some amount of the idea that this guy is like scraping, you know, yeah. like he needs this kind of crap and he, he's got to have Marv as a part of his twosome here. And, you know, I don't feel like De Niro or, or God, a lot of these other people would, I'm looking at your list here of like Kevin Klein or Tommy Lee Jones. Like I cannot imagine them. No, but like you look at a Bob Hoskins or a Danny DeVito. Danny DeVito could have probably put Pulled it off. Yeah, but Bob Hoskins has a whole schlubby side to him, too. I mean, he was fresh yes. off of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, so he was a name being bandied about. But there's an unshaven, smelly kind of quality to him <laughs> that you can but see him Phil doing Phil Collins, shut up. That's ridiculous. No, I think if – and if you take a De Niro in this movie, then, then he goes from being schlubby – petty thief to menacing gangster type because that's De Niro's vibe. If you're going to make him a bad guy, De Niro's vibe is I'm going to cut your knees off, you know, like yeah, I'm going to take a bat to you. you actually scared. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And not working really for a, for a kid's movie. But one of the things that Columbus said was that he most specifically did a darker look on this movie because we're all used to kids movies being very bright, very colorful. But if you really like, if you rewatch this with the eye of like the lighting, it is very dark. They shoot at night a lot and they do. A lot of the scenes are very not well lit in any kind of way. So it has this menace quality that if then you also add in robert de niro like that would be too much oh yeah i mean yeah almost like jack nicholson in like the shining you know yes like, McAllister, <laughs> i'm coming yes. for you, you know, too, much, oof, too, I, much, I, I, too much yeah so daniel stern is interesting because uh so christopher lloyd and michael richards were two actors comedic actors just like daniel stern who were looked at for the role both of them were unavailable daniel stern gets gets cast He's told it's going to be six weeks worth of work. They come back to him a couple days later and they say, you know, actually, it's going to be eight weeks worth of work. It's going to be two extra weeks. He says, well, I'm going to get am I going to get a raise? And they're like, no, no, no raise. (laughs) And so he's like, well, peace. And he walks away from the film. He quits the film. So they hire uh, Daniel Roebuck, this actor, Daniel Roebuck, who wasn't terribly well known. He had done some movies. Okay, I know him. Yeah, he's like a big guy. He's like, you know, he's kind of like a schlubby guy, you know. He was doing a little Matlock. Uh, The Dirty Dozen. U.S. Marshals, The Fugitive. So he gets hired, and uh, after just two days of rehearsal, 
Chris Columbus goes to the producers. He's like, listen, he's got no chemistry with Pesci. It's not not a knock on him. It's just not working. These two together. They're like, we well, got to get Stern back. And so they go back. So they fire Robach, who who gets paid handsomely to not make this movie, because part of the deal when they fire him from the movie that they just hired him is they cut him a large check. Uh, part of the agreement was he couldn't appear in any movies until this movie came out. So, but he was paid well for it. But apparently, Daniel Roebuck, uh, Daniel Roebuck has said that it uh, it was a big blow to his ego, and he was quite upset about it for a very long time. Wow. Um, yeah. And now nowadays talks about it as like this little blip that didn't really affect his career in any kind of way. But come on, buddy. I'm, I'm you know, it's crazy that they had to pay him out like that because, you know, this has a this movie has an extremely small budget. I mean, it was only 18 million for 20th Century Fox. I mean, this was a really, really small budget. And it affects a lot of things that I appreciate, like the special effects, having to use more practical effects, which, you know, I love. We have found that to be a through line here for the favorite movies are practical. Practical effects over special effects. Yeah, I, I was like, wait a minute, only 18 million. This was not a lot at all. It actually was too, too much, though, actually. And, and I'm glad you, you brought this up because this goes back to getting the movie made. Not only do you have the Christmas Vacation Chevy Chase snafu before this movie ever gets going, John Hughes actually takes this movie to Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers agrees to make Home Alone because John Hughes says that he can make it for $10 million. Once they actually start doing the pre-production on it, the budget balloons up to $14.7 million. Now, they haven't actually filmed anything. They're just building the sets because the the gorgeous home that's used in the movie, they were basically not able to shoot inside at all. They were able to use a couple of things from inside the house, but mostly they built a two-story house inside a gym at a high school that was currently not being used, uh, the Trier's High School in Illinois that John Hughes had actually used previously in Ferris Bueller's and actually had used in Uncle Buck the year before. Anyway, so the the budget balloons up to $14.7 million, and Warner Brothers is like, hey, 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 we agree to $10 million, not this $14 million nonsense that you're trying to push on us. Get your budget down to $13.5 million. That's just $1.2 million, Warner Brothers says. You have to cut another $1.2 million off of this or else we're pulling the plug on this movie now. That's insane right. looking in hindsight. But even at the time, this movie was a small budget, even compared to movies being made in 1990. Um, I, I think I had seen a chart where like the average like big blockbusters for the same year, the average was like between like 40 and like 60 million dollars to make. So this movie was super cheap, even at 14.7 million dollars. John Hughes, having a feeling that Warner Brothers was going to have an issue with the budget, had kind of put. 20th Century Fox, because he was friends with some of the studio executives there, he had put them in their back pocket and had a side deal, which is not exactly legal, but he had basically an agreement with place with 20th Century of Fox that if Warner Brothers pulled the plug on the movie, 20th Century Fox had, had agreed to pick up the movie without losing a beat. So uh, they write a memo. Warner Brothers says, you got to get it down to 13.5. You have to shave $1.2 million off your budget. They write a memo to Warner Brothers saying, listen, there's nothing left to cut. This movie is as lean as it can be. And you're passing on something very special here. At $14.7 million, we're making a very special movie here. Don't do this. Warner Brothers shows up to the high school because not only were they, not only had they built the sets at the high school, the entire production was set up at this high school. And the studio rep on set is going around to the production offices and says, the movie shut down, the movie shut down, Warner Brothers is pulling the plug. 
<laughs> they call 20th Century Fox. One of one of the producers on set or on at the production office calls 20th Century Fox and says, "Listen, Time Warner, uh, Warner Brothers has pulled the plug on the movie." 20th Century Fox says, "You are our go. This is now a 20th Century Fox film." Right there, just like that. So the producer is following office to office, the Warner Brothers guy, and he's going into the offices and he's like, yeah, I know he told you to shut it down. Don't shut it down. We're still back up. It's a 20th Century Fox movie now. And it's this great little, because the the office is set up like a U. And so he's following this Warner Brothers guy. As he leaves an office, he would go into the office and say, ignore what he said. We're a 20th Century Fox movie now. It's all good to go. (laughs) They get to the end of like the cycle. The Warner Brothers guy is like, what are you doing? And he's like, this is not your movie anymore. Get out of here. The producer throws <laughs> nice. them off the set. The next day, they all show up, and there's 20th Century Fox t-shirts on all the production chairs. Like, oh, my God. It was like overnight, all the equipment had become 20th Century Fox equipment. Now, there's some like, there's some like legal uh, fudging going on here because of the way the rules are in, in when a movie can be dumped and picked up by another company. But, you know, I guess that was all smoothed over. But, yeah, so really tumultuous kind of beginning for a movie that was super cheap and the the budget ends up being just under 18 million dollars and makes it 477 million dollars Warner brothers you have to be kicking yourself for being so (laughs) right you're being a real uncle frank if you if you don't mind me saying real uncle frank (laughs) oh my god do you know who they originally tried to cast as uncle frank in this movie no, who? Kelsey Grammer. No, that's terrible. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> that's a ridiculous. Salad and scrambled eggs, <laughs> except for it's about <laughs> shrimp, and he sings it in French. Shrimp. <laughs> oh, Uncle Frank, uh, the real oh, villain. Oh yeah. Do you want to hear a great Uncle Frank fact? Sure. Uh, the original script, this is before Chris Columbus gets his hands on it. The original script allegedly has a whole subplot where Uncle Frank is actually the person the Wet Bandits is working for. That Uncle oh Frank, that Uncle Frank, knowing that the families were going to be out of town this week because the Murphys are going to be in Florida, the McAllisters yeah. are going to be in Paris. Uncle Frank engineers the wet bandits to burglarize these homes during this time, and that the wet bandits are actually working for Uncle Frank. He's like truly the villain of the original wow. original script. That's kind of wild. That's kind of wild. <laughs> you know what? This is this is a hilarious getting older kind of moment. So you know, I've seen Home Alone a million times, but this time I was watching it so much more carefully. You know, I realized, Mike, we're like the ages of like Uncle Frank and like the mom and dad and everything. And I'm so I'm like watching this and I'm like, I'm like, Uncle Frank's thinner than I remember him. <laughs> like, I right? was like, like, as like a kid watching it, I was like, oh, God, he's a fat old dad. He's like mean and stuff. Now I'm like, oh, man, he's like my peer. On this. <laughs> That's terrible. John Candy is four was four years younger than I am now when he was in this movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> He was 39 at the time. At the oh, day. my God. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, That's crazy. crazy. Yeah. Uh, just just generally, the even just the idea, though, of looking at them as moms and dads. The first time I saw this movie, they were like my mom and dad. And then yeah. watching this and and they're my peers now is like this is the first time I saw that as like I'm the mom and dad in this movie now. I'm not one of the kids. No, I had the and same realization. I, same realization. I, that really shocked me. And then I'm like checking out Uncle Frank and Mr. McAllister. What's my problem? Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm glad that you brought up. So John Hurd, who plays Peter McAllister, he's another one of these doubting Debbies. Uh, what, yeah. You know, who uh, who was like, you know, uh, unhappy about the film, 
thought it was kind of tr- trash, didn't think it was going to be any kind of a hit. So much so, this was in a, a, a podcast, uh, Alec Baldwin's podcast uh, that he does. Chris Columbus goes on, he's telling the story. He says, John heard felt so bad about the negativity he brought to filming this movie and his role as Peter McAllister, by the way. And he's a total dud, I think, in this movie. I agree. Now, he's one who you could recast with just about anybody. And again, another role where a ton of people were looked at uh, for the yeah. role of Peter McAllister. Yeah, I, I, I think I even saw a list that contained Brian Cranston as the role. Which he is, could have done it, though, honestly. Have, for sure, for sure. He could have put in anybody, honestly. But I mean, Cranston would have been amazing. Yeah, I don't know what, how old what Brian Cranston would have been 31 years ago. But anyway, so Peter McAllister, when they go to film Home Alone 2 on set, when McAllister shows up, when John Hurt shows up to uh, film his scenes as Peter McAllister, he begins by apologizing on set to Chris Columbus for ever doubting the film and for thanking him for making such a great thing, right? Because I'm sure Peter McAllister got paid because the movie was I'm so sure successful. He did get paid, right? And so, but because it was on set, the cameras were rolling. So, uh, so the story ends with Chris Columbus saying he's got this apology, like for posterity, locked on film <laughs> of John Hurt. Aww. Yeah, yeah. In the little in the commentary that that Columbus was saying on this, he just kept saying that John Hurt had no idea what he was doing in the movie. Like that's what he kept telling people. Like I. Have have no idea what i'm doing here i don't understand why i was cast in this movie <laughs> yeah yeah i mean oh that's another God. thing i mean but why is Catherine o'hara cast in this movie i mean you and i love Catherine o'hara because she has become do love her we, we she's become synonymous with moira rose in later in in recent years i mean she's got uh she's got a history that goes back to the 70s with eugene levy and with john candy from the sctv days which i was a big fan of growing up watching sctv and repeats um i was probably a bigger fan of sctv than i was even of snl in the 80s watching repeats of it you know what Catherine has that she brings to the moira rose character as well that is essential to this one what that fantastic scream she does she does she's got that kevin scream that you could recognize anywhere right and she brings it to moira as well (laughs) nice i'm gonna randomly do that throughout the episode okay yeah i mean i i think that's what she brings she brings that like completely frazzled and plus she's such a fantastic contrast to john candy you know who she who she spends most of the film with honestly really does she really does and they have such great chemistry they had worked together for years on the ctv so there was a real natural comedic chemistry that already existed there she actually gets the role though um because janet hershenson who is the casting director for this movie had done tim burton's beetlejuice and had worked with ken had cast Catherine in beetlejuice and loved her in that movie which if you all haven't seen beetlejuice go watch it it's fantastic and Catherine o'hara though plays kind of a bad guy is great in it and very very funny and also like kind of a mix between like mom in home alone and moira rose very has a very moira rose vibe but also she's trying to do her mom thing more so yeah yeah that's crazy right she's got a good vibe she's a great vibe can i tell you i was so it was so strange realizing she had a name other than mom in this movie yeah what's her actual first name hold on let me think for a second what would either so peter McAllister and peter and what right that's the thing everyone else has an identifiable name including the husband except buzz right all the all the cousins and the siblings yeah oh my fuller Fuller, who's who's actually played by kieran culkin macaulay's little brother Fuller's gonna pee the bed there's so much there's so much freaking pepsi in this movie what is her name kate 
Oh, God. How long would we have sat here trying to guess that? I mean, Ka- Catherine and Kate, too. But I, I would probably would have said it was Catherine because I, it felt like only from Catherine, not Kate. But like, I know I don't like I can't hear anyone calling her Kate in my head. But Catherine wow. seems like I could hear that. But weird. Isn't that weird? Yeah. And I guess I, I read an interview where she said, I think this was in 2015, where Macaulay Culkin still calls her mom when they oh, talk to each other. Yeah. That's so cute. But that's how I think of her too, though. I, when I saw that she had a name, I, even in my notes, even after realizing her name was Kate, I still referred to her as mom. Mike, okay, now I need a little TV special where they bring on Macaulay Culkin and they bring out like Winona Ryder and... Dan and, Dan uh, and, and Murphy. <laughs> yes. Can you imagine like some sort of Mother's Day special or something <laughs> where they bring out all the people that she was the mom to? Like, that would be so cute i would love it and how young she was again she's another one i mean i didn't do the math on this but she was definitely younger than you and i are now when she's making this movie it's crazy pants crazy pants that's craziness um we brought him up but let's talk about john candy because this is a little bit of a weird one uh that john candy appears in this as uh you know the polka king of the midwest you thought it was weird see i didn't think it was weird well it's weird because well it's weird for this reason he did this movie purely as a favor to John Hughes. Okay. Um, they they needed this character. They, they had this Polinsky character. John Hughes and John Candy had worked together in Uncle Buck, and they were friends. And so John Hughes basically calls him up and says, you know, come do this movie. He's like, yeah, not a problem. He, John Hughes, apparently, when he writes a script, if he tells you that he doesn't want you to improvise, like sometimes in like Breakfast Club, he would tell he would tell the, the Brat Pack to improvise scenes. Uh, there are some things he's OK with being improvised. But generally, John Hughes did not like his script being uh, deterred from John Candy, though. John Hughes tells Chris Columbus, listen, encourage John to make up his lines. Let him go. Let him improvise. He shows up. John Hughes hadn't been on set. He'd only been to the set once during the filming of the movie. He shows up for the John Candy day, though, right? Because it's a big deal that day that he's coming. They have John Candy for one day, Caroline. It turns oh. into a 23-hour shoot day. Shut up. He's like, I'm available for one day. They're like, we'll keep you for 23 hours we're, of yes, it. We're going to keep you for 23 <laughs> hours, which, which, apparently, wow. which apparently he was like stressed. It, it, uh, it stretched the limit of his good humor. But all of his lines, they're all improvised. The polka, 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 <laughs> the Kenosha kickers, all of that, all of the oh lines, the gosh. funeral parlor scene that he does, that, that story he talks about leaving his kid in the funeral parlor, all of that. <laughs> <laughs> so funny, all improvised. That's what you wow. get when you get John Candy. He's genius. Do you know how much he got paid for this uh, this one day of, uh, of of acting? I can't imagine. Right? You would think it's John Candy. He's a big, I mean, this is like peak John Candy. He would only it go is. on to make one more film after this. His like final film uh, is, well, one more family film is Cool Runnings after this before he passed away in 1994. He made, you ready? Sit down. It's a big number. Okay. All right. I'm ready. He does this for scale, the minimum $414 per day, and he only worked one day. So John Candy made $414 for his performance in this film. Oh, my God. That's I mean, why it's a big huge. deal. That's why well, he is huge. But that's why it's a big deal that he does this because it's such a favor to John Hughes. The pizza delivery guy made $500 per day. Oh, my God. The pizza delivery guy, the little Nero's guy who knocks over the the lawn jockey twice, (laughs) he made more money than John Candy did for this film. That's crazy. Right? Wow. Well, you know, thank God for favors, right? That's it. It's good to know people. (laughs) This is why you should always be kind to people because you never know when you're going to need them. 
Exactly. What did you think of Robert's Blossom as Old Man Marley? So I didn't really know him from anything else off the top of my head, but he looked like the like the old man on anyone's street that you feel like, you know, you're scared of. But then also, if you were really in a crunch, you could trust him. Maybe that's I have that in my head only because of him. Like maybe maybe he actually taught me that like an old man on the street. I, I am wary of them, but I also do feel I could ask them for help if I was home alone. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So you're, you know, he wears Kevin down throughout the movie, right? Because he, he first comes upon Old Man Marley and it's weird. Like he acts like he's never heard of the guy before, but you live next door to him. So I don't know how you've never seen him before, Kevin, but yeah, but you know, you're a little kid. Do you know like all your neighbors' names necessarily? I definitely didn't, especially if they didn't have a kid. Uh, that's very true. That's very true. And obviously, he's not having a relationship with his granddaughter. So it's not like the little redheaded girl is coming around the house much. It's funny, actually, in the church scene, he says, that's my granddaughter up there. She's about your age. But do you know her? And he's like, no, I don't know her. So, yeah. So when Buzz tells that story, that really puts old man Marley on Kevin's map. And then they run into each other several times, right? He sees him on the street when he runs outside after he's uh, yelling to the wet bandits who have now left saying, I'm not scared of you. But then he runs back inside when he comes with old man Marley comes around the way. <laughs> he runs into him in the, in the, in the drugstore, which, which uh, leads Kevin to stealing the toothbrush and that scene across the ice rink. But yeah, so he kind of wears him down. And finally, when he's in church, he really can't run from him anymore. Right. So he has to kind of let him come and sit down there. And then he realizes, Oh, you're actually a pretty good guy. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I didn't know him from anything before, but I was really, really kind of blown away by how perfectly he fits what this character was supposed to be. Macaulay Culkin was saying that he did like a he did like a commercial, some sort of Ellis Island commercial with him, like near right after this. Like he Robert Blossom plays his grandfather and he's supposed to be like the grandkid in this Ellis Island commercial that happens like not long after shooting this. Oh, really? That's weird. I know. Weird, right? <laughs> uh, Robert, so Robert, Robert's boss went on to say that uh, this was like a high point of his career. Um, yeah, even after he was like, this was, he, he talked about, it was in the context of talking about how kids still would come up to him on the street years later and say, you're that guy from, you know, yeah. and would, would kind of recognize and him. And you helped and like, you, you were like you were the a kind man. hero. Yeah. Right. Right. You, you know, you weren't a shovel slayer, but you were a shovel hitting, you know, guy for a good reason. <laughs> yes. For a good reason. <laughs> nice. So, um, yeah. And then I don't think we have to go through all the other characters, but, uh, I think in a family of what I think are largely unlikable people, who are who are like the the McAllister extended family people that you like the least? Oh, God. Uh, I mean, Uncle Frank was like the one I, that I'm mean, that little, that, you little, little jerk. Yeah. Yeah. All that business. Yeah. No. The, yeah. Jerk. Jerk hit my ears so hard when I was a kid because I, I never heard of an adult calling a kid a jerk. And I think I was like, oh, my God, like that's a that's terrible. So, yeah, he seemed like a really, really horrible adult. And the kids, man, of course, Buzz would Buzz. drive me absolutely freaking insane. Yeah. I mean, even the actor. Uh, Devin Rattray, I think his name is, says he was asked, you know, what ha he was in like one of those like 30 year kind of interviews. Uh, he was asked what happened to Buzz. And he says, uh, he's like, I'm pretty sure he ended up going to prison. So, <laughs> which sounds about right. Oh, you want to hear a little fun fact about because, you know, there's that scene where Kevin picks up the picture of the girlfriend. Oh, yeah. I actually, Chris, Chris Columbus really went into great detail on this one. Oh, so you, why don't you tell us about it then? So I've been on the This Is Us podcast a bunch, and we've been talking about how 
they the writers are starting to get more and more nervous about not making certain certain groups of people look bad and so it's affecting the writing and i so i was i was thinking of this in my brain while this chris columbus commentary was going on and he is talking about the scene with buzz's girlfriend in the picture and how he was like not wanting to put a girl in this picture because he felt like it was going to be terrible. And so he was like, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So he decides to go ahead and instead have a boy dress up. That was so clever and creative. And like, I like that Chris Columbus's brain would say, I don't want to like mark a girl out in the world as like ugly, you know, like what a good heart. Well, I mean, what her IMDb credit would be ugly girl in picture. Like that wolf girl. girl. (laughs) But, But also though, I mean, it's a real thing. A little brother would say, in reaction to it. So it, it, it's real, but it's also super mean. That being said, so the the picture the boy used was actually the art director on the movie's son, Dan Webster. It was Dan Webster's son. So I There mean, was so much nepotism in this movie, Mike. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, Kieran, Kieran Culkin is like the least of it, appearing as Fuller. Chris Columbus had... Oh, my had, gosh. Had Everybody. Like, yeah, he had like 19 people from his family appear in... Uh, yeah. Do you, did you recognize any of them? Did you know any of them? I did, and I'm only about reading about it. My favorite one was the father father-in-law is the cop who says tell them to count their kids <laughs> yes that one and then also like his wife plays the stewardess on the plane his own little daughter and is 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 on the plane like as a little infant she's like the one that's like when you're like looking into the plane she's like sitting on an older woman's lap like a grandma's lap that's his mother-in-law's lap like there's so many people that he employed on this and like every little person like the driver that takes him to the airport that was just his driver that takes him <laughs> so like funny. it's so funny He's just like, you seem like you could do this on film. Come on, come on. (laughs) Well, you know, I kind of like that, though. So one of the reasons that this is in Chicago and one of the reasons that so many John Hughes films take place in Chicago is because John Hughes didn't like the studio system. And so he always wanted to make his movies far away from L.A. or from New York because he wanted to avoid interference from the studios. So the whole like nepotism aspect of it. Is kind of endearing, right? It's the idea of you're, you know, walking down a street and like you see a mailman and be like, you could be a mailman in this movie, right? Like, come on, you know? It also makes me feel like there's costumes in the barn, let's put on a show in a way that just feels like fun and inclusive and like, come on, let's just make this movie. It'll be so much fun. Like the father in law, right? So, you know, for family dinners for years to come, every time they were gathered, the dad would be like, remember when I played a cop in that movie? You know, like, you know, it was that kind of thing, though. Apparently, according to Chris Columbus, actually did enough of those types of roles for Chris Columbus films that that was his career. Like, that's what he did was those little. Yeah, it wasn't a total side gig. That's so funny. There's some funny. Yeah. Uh, so uh, let's talk about uh, since we're kind of there already. I'm, I'm about to wow you with a segue. Uh, Shut up, are you? Yeah. So we're talking about actors who aren't really well known at this time. Who okay. did you notice who's playing the French ticket agent in this movie? I did. Well, tell us. <laughs> tell us who it was and why it why it was particularly important to you and me. Well, it hit me because it was Hope Davis. And at first I was like, okay, Hope Davis, Hope Davis, why do I know you? Why are you so familiar? And then I'm like, oh, you're Gina from Your Honor. And we have just spent the last, what, 10 weeks with, with the Baxter family over on Your Honor and staring at Gina's face. And to see her as this super duper young blonde, I was like, oh my God, Hope Davis, like you have had quite a career, my friend. 
Yeah, I mean, and not being able to help uh, Kate, mom, you know, right. right out of the old Gina Baxter milieu. You wouldn't expect anything less than a French-speaking... <laughs> Baxters. Baxters. You're not Italian. You're French, <laughs> as it turns out. Um, but it's in the airport where I think, and not this airport, actually, is the it's Scranton so airport, where I think we get another one of our big Christmas themes that becomes kind of why this works as a holiday movie. So let's like, listen to this clip right here. No, 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 no way. This is Christmas, the season of perpetual hope. Mammoth. And I don't care if I have to get out on your runway and hitchhike. If it costs me everything I own, if I have to sell my soul to the devil himself, I am going to get home to my son. Oh, that that's what Christmas is all about. That's what Christmas is. It's the season of perpetual hope. It doesn't work yeah. at 4th of July. Fourth of July is not the season you of perpetual so hope. Fun. Do you know that you use Fourth of July as I the guess. alternate holiday on every single one yeah, of these? Well, because it's the it's <laughs> I mean, I would use Father's Day. But no, I use that I use Fourth of July on purpose because it's the opposite time of year. I guess I could use Father's Day, which is probably the actual opposite, but Father's Day does have some emotional uh resonance to it. Fourth of July <laughs> well, is just so a fact but I because I, I used to use you know, Arbor Fourth Day. Fourth of July is a thing. I mean that's it's but, you know, but, but, but not whatever. for emotional themes though. I used to use Arbor Day all the time, but no one finds it as funny as I do. So Well, I will laugh at Arbor Day. Let's right, move forward start, to Arbor I'll, Day. I'll start, I'll start using often. Arbor Day. But so but yes, yeah, no, it's not Arbor Day is not the season of perpetual hope like it doesn't no. work the same it's the about urgency, planting trees the urgency to get home to your son is is reason enough alone sure right of course but getting home to your kid who's been left alone on christmas yeah it's a whole next level it's a whole next level of things and it and i it, i mean this movie is checking all of the christmas theme boxes but this idea of hope uh not only on on mom on kate to get back to her family but also kevin making the wish for his parents to uh his family to come back to him to magically arrive again remember he doesn't realize what's happened right because he checks their cars are still in the driveway he wasn't in on the plan that there would be airport taking them he thinks they've been disappeared into the ether like the snap in you know the avengers movie yeah. uh, so it's a or big the deal leftovers. right or the leftovers right so it's a big deal for him to turn around and have that dawning realization that his mother is standing there and when he breaks into a smile and his his wishes come true and then the family comes tromping in right after them with their own christmas miracle and appearance <laughs> yeah so it's really truly magical it, it, it is a testament to the power of hope we can't take away from enough it's one of the things that makes this a great christmas movie well let's talk about some high points and low points in the movie parts we love and we like could replay all the time and parts that were like wah wah why do we have to have this scene so for me a big wah wah scene is anytime we cut away to the family in france now (laughs) well it's funny because now getting before i sat down before i pressed play on this i was thinking to myself about the things i remembered i liked and didn't like about the movie and and I, i was pretty dead on even when i watched it again in in the same feelings and one of the things i remembered was the movie spends too much time with kevin's family in france now in actuality they spend very little time over in france especially once the mom 
cuts away from them, right? There's very yes. little French time. But in my head, it was still French too, too much. <laughs> there was still too, too much. And watching it again, I would have been yeah. fine if we never visited them. They, <laughs> you didn't care what their re- re- reactions were. No, because they didn't really care. None of them really care. Even the dad. None Peter of them McCall- were sad, right? Peter McAllister, I, the guy could not have been more nonplussed about his kid being stuck at home. If you had given Peter McAllister the chance, well, you know, we could still stay in Paris. Kevin will still be alive live in a week i think he would have really seriously considered it he would have (laughs) seriously considered it he was i am a father of a 12 year old if i got stuck across the ocean from him i i think i would be much more like Catherine o'hara than i would be like peter McAllister. definitely for sure without a doubt and the director's commentary columbus talked about how the movie was actually 10 minutes longer and and maybe this would have balanced your dislike of the france scenes because there was more time of kevin just walking around the house looking for the family Hmm. like a lot of time apparently 10 full minutes of like wandering around yeah so i think that they did a really great job of keeping kevin's side really tight and full of energy Mm -hmm. and i think that's what was lacking on the family side like we just it wasn't tight it was just kind of meandery which maybe is why we could hate it right because like from a kid point of view we want to be where there's like the energy and the action and you know on the the parents are so boring and and you know the family so drab over here in france well exactly exactly and i you know and reading about it, apparently there was a lot more french scenes uh, uh that they cut because testing showed that people wanted to get back to kevin so i'm not alone in my thought i'm not, not i'm not crazy all. by it but even still thinking about it and even watching it, i was like yeah i totally get why i would have been happy with them spending less time here i mean i i would have maybe taken more time with mom and the uh, and the polka band because that was funny and she had a lot of frenetic energy Catherine o'hara brings a lot of of energy and, and chaotic energy to her to her vibe as a mom who's in panic mode but none of the family members including dad rise nearly to the level of her panic that would have been more interesting to me watching them fret more but yeah they seem so disinterested even when the one cousin uh, the one sister was like takes takes buzz to task for not caring more and he is like well, this is actually funny because he gives his reasoning, his logic reasoning, and he goes, A, whatever he says. Then he says, two, whatever he says. And he <laughs> says, and D. Uh, you know, I'm never that lucky. That's funny. And that actually is a comic setup that 31 years later, I still use all the time. All the time. I've actually That's had funny. to avoid doing it at work when I'm talking to people because it's so brained in my humor brain and I have a very professional job and I should not sound like a moron when I speak to people. Very professional job. Uh, I should not sound like a moron when I speak to clients and other people, especially the other side. And so I have to stop myself, especially if I'm writing something like, A, the contract says this. And two, you should not do this because of this reason. It's very funny to me. I still makes me look, just talking about it now. I'm trying to fight the urge to laugh. So well, you can laugh. It's okay here. So uh, I, well, you know, I'm very professional on this podcast too. Oh yes, I forgot. You have a very professional job. So so I give Buzz credit for having uh, that accidental comedic timing. But otherwise, yeah, this guy guys do not work for me at all. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Those are those are definitely the worst scenes of, by far. I wanted to talk to you about Kevin's reaction. I'm glad you brought it up. I wanted to talk to you about Kevin's reaction to when he figures out that his family actually has been disappeared, that his his wish has come true. The the idea of running through the house and screaming and hooting and hollering and doing all the things that you wouldn't normally do. 
I think of you, like so often in these movies where there's some kind of childlike wonderment, I thought of you. And I was oh. wondering. <laughs> That's very funny that you say that. Because I'm kind of known for this little silly thing, listeners, because like, okay, so I recently yesterday posted a, a Facebook post of an astronaut like far above the earth. And he's just like this little tiny guy. And I wrote, this is truly remarkable. And I like feel the wonder of that like i'm like this is amazing and like people are like nope i wouldn't want to do that and i'm like that is not the point i wouldn't ask you if you wanted to be this astronaut i was just saying like look at this be so amazed and like i I was not getting that no one else was being in wonder with me (laughs) but it struck me as this would be a similar reaction that you would have uh, was my thought. And I was curious, is this a, like, have you ever found yourself accidentally alone? You know, the yes. kids are out, Paul is yes. out, the dogs are out. And I'm totally, have, yeah. yeah. I'm like running around naked. Yes, completely. Well, I'm it's absolutely a family eating. show, but okay. Oh, well, no, that's like, a, all right. Whatever. I mean, <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm naked I abs- now because I'm also alone. So, <laughs> but uh, yes, you know what I mean, though. Like you just yes, like you know you get to just relax and just be yourself and do everything you ever wanted to do. Silly stuff. It's the time when the only time when I would like go to the fridge and like squirt you know whipped cream in my mouth, which I totally would do. Mm-hmm. I absolutely do that, mm-hmm. but only if no one's around. Like, and that's scream to the ether people. as you're watching, you know, yeah. angels with dirty souls and scream like I'm watching trashy movies and eating ice cream from a bowl and like. <laughs> I would do that, yes. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. <laughs> Definitely so. that sled scene. You know, I've actually lined something up with a door like that before because yeah, I, I, <laughs> I would... my own my own children, there was one one evening when there was a, a loud booming down the stairs, and then at the bottom of the stairs opens a suitcase and out crawls my nephew. <laughs> And he was like, yeah, we were just trying to slide down the stairs. (laughs) I was like, yeah, this is my house. This is what it's like. Uh, I would call your attention to my notes, Caroline. Uh, Uh The the second sub bullet point under I made my family disappear. What does it say? Oh, it says Caroline would slid out the door. Caroline would absolutely sled out the door. I love sledding. And anytime I get a chance to go sledding, I always want to go sledding. I always need to be surrounded with people with wonder. Wonder and that sled, by the way, uh, actually sits in Chris Columbus's office. He had, the entire cast went on to sign that sled, Aww. and so he keeps it as like a memorabilia in his office still today. So. Well, uh, Macaulay and Chris were quick to point out that had that been actually done the way that he was lining it up, he absolutely would have smashed into the wall. Yes. That the stairs are not in any way lined up for him to do that. And you know what? Watching it, yeah, watching it, uh, get ready for this. I remember thinking as a kid that the logistics didn't line up for it. Even as a twelve-year-old, <laughs> I thought to myself, "That line. I mean, he's going to have to pull a real left." See, and not me. I was so young. I was like, "Do it!" <laughs> and even once he did, I was like, "Yes." <laughs> uh, the, the physics it didn't doesn't work have for me. to work. It doesn't have to work. Not not until you get near to the bottom do you have to figure out it doesn't work. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's how I do it. I mean, part of him maybe would have gone through the pink glass on the side of the door. I mean, maybe not all of them. (laughs) 
No, you just want to smash into the wall. I mean, you know, it would have been a bummer to the wall, but, you know, come on. This is the fun. This is the fun. One of the iconic scenes of Kevin alone is him in his uh, daily ablutions that he takes Mm. to where he's discovering that washing with soap and his belly button, which he's never done before, (laughs) is entertaining and feels good. But obviously he does the aftershave scream, which is iconic. Maybe the single probably most famous scene uh, from the movie. What did you think, though, of watching Kevin kind of grow up? Because that's another theme in this movie. Kevin grows up before our eyes in this three, four day period. He goes from little kid to kind of little man about the house. Does the movie sell that for you in these kinds of scenes? It does. I think it's exactly the type of thing that that kids do. Like they they mimic whatever they've seen adults do when they're in a, a situation where they think they all of a sudden have to be in charge. I see it all the time. Like like uh, with my own kids, I'll like tell the the youngest to go get the middle one, and I hear my own voice. It's like I told you to get downstairs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like I was like, why did you say it like that? Yeah. And he was like, what do you mean? I was like, why did you be like I told you? <laughs> he's like he was like I was like why did didn't you just be like, come downstairs? Like, don't I just sound like that? And he was like, oh. <laughs> I was like, jeez. I, I think kids do it all the time, especially little things like drinking out of like a coffee mug kind of thing. You know, even if you're drinking like juice or something, but putting it in a coffee mug, because that's like what dads do. Yeah. Like, that's a very, that's a whole thing. I'm 43 now. I've recently yeah. had a birthday. And, oh, uh, happy birthday to you. Uh, well, I, I, well, I have a beard. I still have to shave every now and then, but I haven't used after shave in a very long time well do you do you use aftershave if you have a beard i don't know how aftershave actually i mean works. anytime anytime where you shave something the idea of aftershave kind of closes the pores i believe that's oh. like the idea behind aftershave so that that's why you would use it so it doesn't really come up for what if i'm you shaving have a beard. Okay. exactly right because the things you're shaving i mean you're, you're just trimming and cleaning up so you don't look like wolfman but even <laughs> in my pre-beard days how i spent the majority of my life with no beard because this is a relatively new thing i still didn't use aftershave terribly much but i i find during covid times when i sanitize my hands with with like sanitizer gel i often rub my face with it and tap my cheeks as if i'm applying aftershave even as an adult who doesn't use aftershave i still <laughs> kevin McAllister my cheeks with with sanitizing lotion so there you go you put sanitizer on your cheeks i put sanitizer I, I i do the whole you know, like like uh, smacking my cheeks thing. <laughs> now it doesn't burn because I'm a grown man. So, but, uh, but but also that's like a very like you're also at in our hearts. There's lots of things that we do that mimic what we think is to be being an adult, yeah, right? Like yeah. this is adulting. Of course, I would smack my cheeks. Like this that's part of being an adult. So you want to? So a fun fact about that is he's supposed to apply the the script calls for Kevin to apply the aftershave, tap his cheeks, pull his hands away, and then do the scream. Being a kid and not always doing it correctly he taps his cheeks and then holds them up against his cheeks he holds his hands to his cheeks and lets out the iconic scream with the hands on the cheeks it looked so good and went over so well while they were filming it even though it was a mistake they left it it was just one of those great hollywood moments where it was hollywood gold you know this this accidental thing that turned i mean truly iconic it's it's like the cover art for the movie is him holding his hands to his cheeks screaming i love you know going to this whole adulting theme the whole family party scene makes me so happy because it's again 
what kids think parties look like as adults. And just the way that he just makes the adults like dance, like eat, 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 like, just this little back and forth, you know? Yeah. It's so funny. Just how, he, what his version of like an adult cocktail party would look like. Individually. This is my favorite scene in the movie. Because it's so wonder-like, it's so joyous. And and watching him with the different strings, and he's dancing, he's kind of like shaking his little booty in his arms. He's got food sticking out of his mouth. But it's the Michael Jordan cutout rolling through the living room that makes me laugh so, so hard. Uh, I, I, still, I remember loving it as a kid. I remember loving every time I see it. And I, I was still delighted by it today, getting to watch it again. And I know we already hit upon it, but of course that church scene is a beloved scene. And, and I really appreciated Columbus conversation about it um, when he was talking about how he wanted to really highlight again like I was saying like he had those darker kind of moments to it that he really wanted the church to look kind of scary and foreboding in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and and dark because he wanted to include the idea that loneliness is a feeling as a part of this year just as much as the parties and then you know the warmth of the McAllister house you also have this loneliness and the sadness at Christmas time as well so I thought he that scene really played so well into that i mean you hear we heard it in the clip that we played earlier about how you're always welcome in church you know it's just that his son didn't want him to be there and so yeah. the, the idea of churches are are haunting places and especially for something that's being set up for like a midnight mass now i'm a lapsed catholic but of all of the events and activities that a human being can do during the course of the year midnight mass is probably one of my three favorite things you can do during the year there's something about the low lights being lit only by candle the music the solemnity of the event the quietness the peacefulness and it's a haunting feeling churches are haunting places they are inherently kind of spooky and unnerving especially when they're lit like this and and presented like we see here but there's also a beauty and a peace that comes with them and i think columbus captured captures it so so perfectly he he described it like a love hate with the church he feels like he wanted the church to look comforting but also intimidating and in, in terms of just like getting the set together it was a big issue because this wasn't a catholic church and while the catholics we both are catholic have statues and stuff inside churches most of the other religions do not affirmatively and do so not yes it was a real issue for him to bring those in because that's you know he was supposed to have that moment of getting scared by the statue you know looking up at it mm-hmm. and um and so that was like a whole thing with it. But he he forced it there. I, I approve. It brought me back exactly to what that feeling is like. And just the, the quiet, the hushed tones. Though it's actually pretty funny. If you listen to the track, Marley is actually speaking very loudly. Much loud. Much more, <laughs> much more loud than you would ever, ever speak in a church. Especially if a choir was singing. But yeah, it, it's, it's just so well placed in the movie. And it's executed so, so well. Uh, it really stands out as one of the signature pieces of the movie. And it's crazy to think this movie didn't, not having that. Not having yeah. that scene or that those moments. Yeah. Well, and the music in that scene, especially too, just sets you off on this pace from that point forward mm-hmm. where we get it like into like the big crescendo of everything of like getting out there and running back to the house and setting up all these traps and everything. Like it was 
I, I was just, it's perfect. I love it so much. Well, the the music itself is its own whole other aspect of the movie that really ties the whole thing together. John Williams does the score for this movie, uh, though he was the second composer. Actually, a gentleman by the name of Bruce Broughton was actually the original composer, but got stuck working on or was working on The Rescuers Down Under, that animated film. I believe it's a Disney animated film. And so had to back out of Home Alone at the last moment on a whim, though they didn't think they would get him uh, through Steven Spielberg, John Hughes and Chris Columbus reached out to John Williams. He saw an early cut of the movie, was enchanted by it, and so jumped at the chance to write the score for the film. And so the magic of the moves, the magic of the music of this movie, combining original score plus holiday carols and 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 motifs of holiday carols, really ties this movie together. And again, it wouldn't hit the same. You wouldn't feel the same warmth in your chest without the music in this movie. The scene you're talking about where he goes home and he says the iconic, like, I, you know, this is my house and I have to defend it. The yeah. music there becomes very defiant and it's very it's yes. very aggressive, but it's also extremely Christmassy. It, yeah, but it's like compelling. Like, we've got yeah. to do this. You right, know? right. It's it's very trans-Siberian orchestra, actually. Yes. Uh, if you ever listen to, like, their Carol the Bells, it's like, dun, 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 dun. It's, it, without a doubt, yeah. Christmassy, but also, like, we're going to battle. And it's, yes. it's, it's fantastic. Yes. It's fantastic. So following the church scene, and as beautiful as it is, and it's really this moment of peace and calm, that takes us into really probably the largest set piece of the movie, uh, what what I'll call the defense of the house, which is inspired by Kevin's, you know, this is my house and I have to defend it concept. And we see him laying out all the traps that will come into play in a few minutes. You know, I, we didn't talk about this at the beginning of the episode, but this movie has a very smart opening for a lot of reasons. One, because it sets out all of the players and it sets out the tension, but it does a really good job of of layering in the details that make it believable that Kevin could be forgotten. There are things like his plane ticket gets thrown away with the spilled milk cleanup after him and Buzz get into their pushing match with the barfing pizza. Um, his plane ticket is 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 in the trash that Peter McAllister throws away. It's got his name on it. So why don't they catch it at the airport as they're going through the gate? Well, it's because they're, they're not left with an extra ticket that no one claimed. So stuff like that, because... John Hughes was paranoid and was very worried about people not liking the McAllisters for being horrible parents for forgetting their kid. So he, he tried very hard to like fill all the gaps uh, that people could take shots at to, to, to make it believable that this kind of thing would happen. Columbus talks a lot about that in the commentary about how he was very careful about plot holes. Yeah, I mean, and it's still a bit unbelievable that right but right. i mean there is but there is like an 18 people though here you know and so i guess maybe it isn't you know it, but it, it seems like the mom and kevin do have kind of a closer relationship than maybe she has with her other kids at least from the interaction the limited interaction we saw she definitely seems to be the kevin whisperer of the group and by far the only one who's remotely nice to him everyone else kind of treats him like he's a leper and so but so it's a little weird that she wouldn't at some point be like hey where is Kevin, but I, I I think to the extent that they can and make the premise believable, they really do set out all of the they do try and fill in all those gaps. But it's also smart because they layer in this idea that Kevin is crafty. And because there's this whole conversation about him using his father's glue guns and his new fishing hooks to make Christmas ornaments in the garage. 
Yes. That's a great little detail that makes no sense until you get to this part of the movie and you realize, well, this kid actually does have the skill set here that he's now putting to use. I love that. And he's like a little tinkerer. That's like part of his personality. What is that thing? What is it called? Tinker, 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 tailor, tinker, tailor, soldier, spy. Yeah, he's a tinker, tailor, soldier, spy. He's a, it's a John Le Carre spy novel. He is the tinker. He might be also a bit of a tailor and a bit of a soldier. Remember, he walks around with that and a little gun. bit of a spy and a little bit of a spy. He really is all the things. See? He, I mean, he mm-hmm. has the gun strapped to his back like he is a G.I. Joe commando for. See what I did there? See what I did? You put it in the bed. You fluff the blankets <laughs> on it. You give it a little kiss goodnight and said, good night. And you tucked in that joke. <laughs> you tucked in that joke and you said, you're a good joke. <laughs> Yeah, so I love I, – I, I, again, this is one of the things you notice when you're an adult and you have kids and whatever. You, you have life experience that I definitely didn't pick up on as a kid watching this movie. But they really do layer in how this could come to be. He's got the imagination, another, tr- another important aspect of a Christmas movie, imagination and wonder. He's got an imagination. He's creative. And he has these tinkerer skills. These I can make, you know, MacGyver skills that's laid out for us. So when he when it happens here, it has the air of believability. I think this is the probably the most well-known set of the movie. I think it's the probably the part people talk about the most other than the aftershave piece. But I'd like to kind of rapid fire with you because most of these are super, super violent. I'd like to if you're game for it, maybe we do a little bit of word association. Um, OK, we, you know, we'll go through. We'll, it could be, you know, like a phrase association, even whatever. What have you? Yeah. We so, for, be loose. so for instance, I'll say BB gunshot to the groin. Oh, that hurts. That hurts my guts. It hurts. It hurts. <laughs> I, it should, I should have said BB gut to the groin on you because it's more of a groin situation for boys. Even me saying it, I crossed my legs here at my desk. So very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. But I got to tell you, a, a, a BB gun to the face, also not fun. Also not wow. fun. Marv and Harry both get it. Have you ever been shot by a BB gun? I've not been shot by a BB gun. I've been shot up close by paintballs, which leave very uh... large welts. Uh, and can be quite painful. Why when are you getting shot up close? God, boys, boys are very violent and are jerks. <laughs> and paintball is very fun, and and it brings out a real unattractive side in even the most passive young men. <laughs> Something very prehistoric about paint and violence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not allowed in any of the paint and sip classes here in our neighborhood. It's oh just, God. It's, <laughs> I mean, you're too I, out of control. I mean, don't don't ask me to paint Monet flowers and give me wine. It's not going to end well for you people. <laughs> all right. What about ice on the front and back stairs? I fall all the time on ice. This actually like offends me because I fall in my building's driveway all the time. Like at least once a week I fall. So very during the wintertime, very, very upset by the falling ice. The the ice is a good example of the effects in this movie of real stuntmen doing the work. Larry was actually the name of the stuntman who did Macaulay Culkin's work, which is crazy to think of that. There was like a grown adult man stuntman who looked exactly like Macaulay Culkin's size and shape and everything. Wild. So like he did the sled scene and he did all those ones climbing up the shelving unit when the whole shelves like break in that even they didn't use any type of like wires or anything on him. Like he just actually had to just like break through those shelves. I was like, good God. Joe Pesci's stunt double, Troy Brown, he actually was doing those falls on the ice. 
Caroline. Oh, no. Take after take all all of the 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 slips on the ice as Joe Pesci really struggles to get up the stairs, and then eventually after he burns his hand and he has to crawl back down the stairs and stick his hand in like the snow. Troy yeah. Brown is doing real takes there. Uh, wow. He he talks about it in this uh, interview I saw where he talks about how it changed the industry for stunt performers. Home what? Alone. Home Alone was so influential. Uh, for stunt performers that it actually changed the industry. It brought a whole level of respect to the profession because they were doing these as practical effects. No, like you said, no wires, no padded, no padded mats. That's a real guy slipping on real ice, doing a real practice fall. And uh, he, he talks about how for a long time after that, if you were able to get a lot of air doing a slip and fall, like, like the Joe Pesci characters doing in, in here on the ice, it was called, it became known as taking a home alone. Oh my god! Like getting the high air because take after take. So so Chris Columbus really wanted all of these traps to be violent because to him the the vi- more violent they were, the more funny they were. It was one of those things. He 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 talks about how. He doesn't understand why, but something about these bad guys, these burglars having horrible things done to them made him laugh. And so the more outrageous it could be, the 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 better it was. The problem was when he went to film it, he talks about how he couldn't and no one could watch the monitors when the stuntmen were doing these when they were filming these scenes. Oh they had God. they had to turn away because he was like, you know, it was not funny actually on the day of filming it, watching Troy fall over and over again. You know, the thing would happen, someone would yell cut and then he'd look through his fingers and see if the guy was alive or if he was paralyzed or backbroken oh or something God. like that. Stop that's terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. But he's like, but it comes out as gold and really funny on film he's like not funny on the day of shooting the thing the only one who wasn't upset about it troy he was like yeah man it was just my job he's like i really enjoy doing that stuff like he was totally chill about it but 30 years later listening to these interviews these people very still upset and scarred by the ice fall scenes uh in this movie that's really crazy i I mean i'm really impressed i love practical effects so so much it makes such a difference you know yes 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 i love it here's the problem so this so home alone is currently in uh development to be rebooted or remade uh disney like current yeah like currently disney has announced plans to remake of the movie and uh, i don't know that they've released a lot of details about it but my worry is because of the trend and it's 2021 that they're going to remove a lot of the practical effects that makes this movie so special and replace it with cgi and replace it with special effects and computer effects it's not going to hit the same it's not going to feel the same Right. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I'm I'm such a fan of practical effects that I am I yeah, that really bumps me out. I'm like really nervous about that now. Yeah. I heard that maybe like, okay, is this maybe the idea that Macaulay Culkin would be the dad? I don't know. I don't know that I've heard I have any heard details about rumors. It. This movie stars Ellie Kemper and Rob Delaney. A married couple tries to steal back a valuable heirloom from a troublesome kid. AF says it's the sixth installment of the Home Alone franchise. Which is wild. I mean, it's got like known really? people in it. Ellie Kemper, Rob Delaney, uh, sure. Keenan Thompson, Pete Holmes, Andrew Daly, Chris Parnell. I mean, there's some known comics in this movie. I don't see Macaulay Culkin. Maybe it'll be like a cameo. Maybe 
maybe he'll just be like he could be the old man marley he'll be the marley now <laughs> he'll be do you know there's a fan theory that kevin McAllister grew up to be the jigs jigsaw from the saw movies Oh no! Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's like a viral fan theory that that this scene in particular, this defense of the house scene, all these traps, pointed to a mind that would continue to grow up and be broken uh, and and disturbed as he got older and he became wow. Jigsaw. Yeah, no, that's terrible. <laughs> He's very terrible and very dark and very very dark. Okay, back to his best traps though. Let's get to some of these. You know what one really gets to me and like visceral, like freaks me out. These are all visceral for me, but which one? You go for it. Uh, the nail in Marv's foot, the tar on the stairs. Like, I, mm. like, cry my eyes out when I see that. Like, I, I can't. I'm so, maybe I'm traumatized from stepping on too many Legos. I don't know what. But or I, this was like, ah. <laughs> Legos are worse. <laughs> uh, I, I, it just killed me. I was like, no. But I was reading all this stuff about how, you know, definitely the stuntmen did it. But then also, old Marv... Actually, Daniel Stern wore um, like these like big plastic rubber feet to do like barefoot in the snow and stuff like that. But then he was actually barefoot when he stepped all over those Christmas ornaments under the window. Fun fact, though, those ornaments made of sugar, uh, they were candy. They were not actual glass. But Chris Columbus says you could still absolutely cut your foot on that candy. Oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, I'm sure when he's screaming and going ouchy, ouchy as he walks through that, that uh, it could not have felt good because there are sharp edges there, and that's going to hurt your foot one way or another. But he demanded to do it. He was like, "I want to do this." Well, and maybe, maybe it was maybe it was his penance for being such a wet blanket at the start of the filming of the movie. (laughs) He felt like he had a wet bandit started. (laughs) He had to redeem himself a little bit. The tar on the nail is definitely visceral, but the uh, what happens to. Harry, with not only the M uh, being imbran- branded on his hand, imagine, imagine the, pa- the palm of your hand, but then he walks into the blowtorch on his head. Now, that one was really cool. Columbus explained how they actually used mirrors with the camera to make the fire burning onto his head. So there's like mirror effects that do that. Pretty red. That is pretty red. I know. I love practical effects. Optical illusions are the coolest. But there was actually also a fake head, though, that was used to line up with Joe Pesci's head that they actually did set on fire. He kept that head. Columbus kept that head. His office has got to be filled with a lot of stuff. He's got a big sled. <laughs> he's got a burnt head. Yeah, Chris Columbus. A pretty, pretty weird business to have around. Chris, Chris, Chris Columbus. He's making his own Ripley's Museum, is what it sounds like to me. <laughs> yeah, right. Museum of the weird. You mentioned it already with the Legos, but could you identify with Marvin Harry slipping on the micro machines at the base of the big staircase, McAllister staircase? I, I mean, I yes, and, and it's like a horrible feeling. I, I can't again just stepping on toys in general is like ah. Now the paint can trap my mind can't really wrap around that pain like i think you'd be dead don't you think so if something hit your cabeza that hard paint cans are really heavy and they were full they were not empty paint cans yeah. i think you would <laughs> die mike i don't think you would just lose a tooth i think you would die well here's the thing i think so a study someone released a study because when when the first rumors of this movie being remade uh started to surface i think i think uh, a, a group of scientists or a group of doctors came out with some kind of study that basically said marvin harry would definitely be dead several times over from the wounds and 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 things that that happened to them in this sequence that really? not, not just once but multiple times would probably have died from the things that happened to them the blunt force trauma of it 
I, uh, definitely the pink hand to the head. Come on. The pink hand to the head. I would imagine the zip line slamming you into the side of the house. I imagine a blowtorch setting your hair on fire. <laughs> or your, just your scalp. But yeah. I mean, I mean, you, you got a brain right underneath there, you know. Um, mm-mm, mm-mm. There, there's a great – there's actually a great little bit of continuity that I love. It's right actually after the tar and nail scene. Marv picks up his toys and decides that he's not going to try the basement stairs anymore, and he goes back outside. And the camera doesn't follow him. The camera stays right at the base of the staircase, so we just watch him walk away from the camera and goes outside and as soon as the door closes you hear whoop and then like his head disappears from view from the door because again it's still icy out on the stairs that he that he <laughs> fell all the way down remember coming down the stairs into the basement he goes thump 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 so it was just like a little bit of continuity at the at the side the stairs were still iced and he falls again so <laughs> Here's a little bit of uh, Joe Pesci coming through after the pink can thing in a movie that is generally family friendly only has one curse word that actually slipped into the movie. Do you know where? No, where? It's the scene where Marv, the first time he's checking out the house and he sticks his foot through the doggy door and the boot comes off. Okay. Daniel Stern uttered a a shit. And it made it into the cut. No one ever took it out. And it even it appeared, you could hear it clear as day. He says it as he's like looking for his shoe, trying to get it back. That after it falls off in the doggy door, you hear him say the S word. It comes up on the closed captioning. It's the only curse word that made it into the movie. Because wow. he, he kind of mutters it, but it's very clear if you're just paying attention to the movie. After the pan can scenes, Harry turns says as he's going up the stairs trying to vowing to get kevin he says i'm gonna snap off your cojones and boil them in motor oil whoa that is yeah that's aggressive (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean this is not just like all playing around you know i mean some of this stuff is like freaky and horrible yeah no there comes a point where marv and harry want to kill this boy and I'm, like, afraid they are going to get their hands on him at some point. I, I, if not for old man Marley, things don't end well for Kevin. I think these guys were pushed over the edge. Kevin is lucky to have walked out of this movie as unscathed as he did. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, but we're still not done. We're still not done because he gets to the top of the stairs. And even though it's a pretty high-waisted tripwire, Harry falls over the tripwire. But that's not the problem for me. The problem was what comes next. Tarantula. <laughs> tarantula i don't like spiders i don't like bugs i certainly don't like spiders that tarantula would have made me poop my pants well daniel stern wanted it to be a real sitch so no stuntman there that was really a tarantula on his face he had to just silent scream because they didn't want to scare the tarantula and so he just had to silent scream like open his mouth look like he was screaming and then they put it in later because oh, it was like that, that much of a concern uh, see I, re- I read the lying. opposite i i had read that Okay, so the INDB fact has it actually the opposite, that Daniel Stern confirmed that, that I, unless I made this up, uh, has it confirmed that the tarantulas don't have ears or couldn't hear, and so that's, and let out the scream. Columbus said no on, on my thing. The scream that Daniel Stern belts out during the tarantula scene was filmed live on set after Stern was assured by the animal handlers that tarantulas do not have ears. The tarantula's poison was not extracted, as some have thought. This was all confirmed by Daniel Stern in a December 24th, 2015 post on his Facebook page. 
I don't know what to say. I was I got my information from Chris Columbus's lips off of the commentary. Well, <laughs> so, either way, know. either way, spiders are terrifying, and <laughs> I actually understand why he takes a crowbar to Harry's chest over and over again. Though, how pathetic is it when Harry is like, "Marv, what are you doing, Marv? What oh, what are you doing worst. with the crowbar, Marv?" It's the worst because you know it's coming. These bumbling fools, you know it's coming, Caroline, and it's they're just the worst. It's bad. Very bad. We're almost done. What do I say? What What do you say if I, what do you think if I say cut zipline? You're, you're a fan of ziplines. What do you think of the... <laughs> I'm a fan of ziplines. The fear of them being cut while you're in mid-zip. You know what? That scene, actually, that's not what caught my, my eye or ears. It's after Kevin goes and then Marv says, maybe he committed suicide. Dark. That's an improvised line that Whoa. Daniel Starring comes up with, which makes it even worse in some ways. It was weird. I was like, for a kid's movie, who says that? But that, again, you know, this isn't really all kids. Uh, you know, no, it's definitely a, it's a family movie, but it's not a kid's movie necessarily. I agree. There's those weird moments where you're like, that's a little much. I feel like Harry even looks at him like, wow, that's really dark. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, whether exactly. it's Joe Pesci or, or, you know, being like, wow, or it was just him in character as Harry. He looks at him as like seriously that's where we're going with this right. um yeah but there is a but then again but then they follow it up with a really funny line marv says well we got to get to him he's going to call the police and harry says where from the treehouse it was very funny the way he says it so <laughs> it's just good banter these two really do have chemistry i'm glad that we got the stern pesci combination because they do work very well together it's a very abbott and costello ish type relationship you know absolutely absolutely and of course the final trap is not really a trap it's the savior it's old man Marley smacking the wet bandits about the head with his shovel. I love that there was like finally an adult who like was on Kevin's side. We needed that. Yeah. And, and was there for him and, and must have been watching him for him to come into the Murphy's house. He must have been keeping an eye on Kevin, which is reassuring. Yes. I, it made me feel better about the whole thing. Honestly. Makes me feel better about the whole thing and makes you think that maybe he was trying to keep an eye on him the entire time. I think he was all those different times. Maybe he doesn't run into him so much as like he maybe is like also going to the store, but he's like keeping up peepers on him. Right. Maybe realize that there's this boy there and I know his family left because old people are up at very early. <laughs> and I'm sure he saw the airport vans knock over the lawn jockey. They're right next door. So, yeah. So I watching this for the very first time, I realized that old man Marley was probably keeping an eye on Kevin, an active eye on him, not just coincidentally running into him. And it's the only way you could really explain that he pops up into the Murphy's house. Hey, uh, we yeah. talked a little bit about Kevin is a creative and he's a tinkerer. How smart was it of him to call the cops and say that it was the Murphy's house? Like he had a whole plan that this thing was going to end up at the Murphy's house. What did you think of that planning? That forethought? I, I think that it was clever as anything, but also like, I think he already knew that the police had been called to his house. Remember? So I think that it was smart to do that because, you know, they might have thought, oh, we already went out to that house. There's nobody there kind of thing, you know. So like super smart to make it be the neighbor. Oh, you know, I had, that hadn't actually occurred to me. I assumed that he wanted it to end at the Murphy's house. Well, because I think it naturally the course had run. He had done everything in his house. Well, yeah, of course. Plus, of course. Uh, plus remember, he does have that throwaway line early in the movie when he comes outside and the wet bandits are in the middle of robbing the Murphy's house. He says to himself out loud, huh, I thought the Murphy's went to Florida. 
which is funny because people thought that the McAllisters went to Paris. So it was he probably put two and two together that the Murphys did go to Florida and the Wet Bandits probably had robbed their house. I love it all. I love all of his all of his thinking. Good, good heads up. Here's a question, though, that really hit me again as being an adult, a, a parent. Is this movie too violent? Is Chris, did Chris Columbus go too far in all of these, these traps? I mean, that's, that's 14 super violent things that, uh, that we just talked through. I don't think so because I think that they're a fun mix of like something that was like very unbelievable. Like I don't think a kid would necessarily set up like the blowtorch, but stuff like the micro machines or, you know, having like your brother's scary spider, like that kind of stuff, like that's believable stuff. So I think it was a good balance. If everything was as extreme as the blowtorch, I would say, you know, over the top, but you know, they, they tempered it. There, so there was actually one trap that we didn't mention. And I actually didn't mention it because it turns out to be Chris Columbus's least favorite because he actually thought it was too soft. It wasn't violent enough. Do you know which one it was that we didn't mention? Yeah, it's that feather one. And he's in, and he talks about it in the commentary as well. And guess what? It was goofy. Like, I mean, it was a want, want joke for me too. But it allows uh, Daniel Stern another improvised line. Well, Harry, why you dress like a chicken? <laughs> that was very funny. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so good improvised. Can you imagine being on set like that and being that with it that you would actually comment like that? Like, that really makes me laugh. Like, good on them for being so, like, in the moment and loose to just, like, say lines like that. Can you imagine being Joe Pesci, who's already a little bent out of shape, that this is not the level, <laughs> that this isn't a Francis Ford Coppola or a Martin Scorsese film, uh, the the auteurship that you think you're entitled to, the level of of thespian acting that you're that you're expecting of someone of your talents, and you have to play flypaper on your face covered in feathers? <laughs> I think it's good stuff, man. And that's why it works is because you could tell this man, this is so absurd. It's just, it's like too much. You can see him breaking inside. It's absurd in a way. And it's an, it's absurd in a wonderful way that kiss, kiss, bang, bang was not. Oh, okay. Yeah. You're going to go there. Well, I mean, because we talked a little bit about it. We actually ended up not talking about it too, too much during the episode of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. But we talked a lot about it while we were watching it. That, you know, the movie went, had gone over so well in Cannes. The Kiss Kiss Bang Bang gets a standing ovation, uh, you know, after it opens at the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, and there's this whole tradition of French farce and French absurdism. And a lot of the stuff that happens in there, the the corpse over the the freeway, all that kind of stuff is is really out there but it doesn't make you laugh necessarily it's more disturbing the stuff here that's over the top and really out there and outlandish and absurd i think makes you laugh and it and it kind of makes you feel good also right because it's the bad guys really getting it stuck to them and they're trying to hurt this little kid and and who doesn't want to root for a little kid against two wet bandits <laughs> Agreed. Uh, and, you know, Kevin gets his great little, like, final kicks in, right? Because as the cops are driving away with the wet bandits in the back, and he gives, like, this little smirky wave and salute to them as they're driving off. And I think that was just so great. It was, it was such an older person thing to do. So it's fun watching an eight-year-old kind of be like, <laughs> and take that. He has that funny little old soul in a young little body. He does. Joe Pesci said about Macaulay Culkin, you know, he may only he's not your normal nine year old. He said uh, he's, he, there's like there's an old man living inside that body. Yeah, uh, he said of him <laughs> at the time. So look at that. I didn't even know Pesci felt that way. Me and Pesci. You guys are, you know, I've always We're said one mind. I've always <laughs> said you're the Pesci of the Pod Clubhouse uh, family. Exactly. <laughs> 
I'm short. I'm bald. (laughs) And you curse a lot. I do curse a lot. Yeah. All right. So why don't we why don't we uh, do some fast facts before we do our jingle bar ratings and we play guess next week's movie? You want to do some fast okay. facts? Okay. Did you know that Angels with a Filthy, Filthy Soul was not a real movie, Mike? It was filmed in one day uh, before they actually started filming. So they actually like he wrote like a second little teeny tiny movie within a movie. It feels like such a noiry kind of film. It feels like it's like a real film. The title, originally they didn't actually even have a title for it, right? It was just the gangster film, but they realized they needed to have a label on the VHS cassette because it was going to be seen, him putting it in the machine. So as an homage to the James Cagney, dirty uh, angels with dirty faces, they came up with angels with uh, filthy souls. (laughs) Super funny. The pages of the Playboy magazine that Kevin finds in Buzz's uh, uh, chest of treasures, they were actually taped together. The pages of that Playboy were taped together so that Macaulay Culkin actually wouldn't see any nudity as he flipped through it. The cover was actually a real Playboy cover. It was the July 1989 issue of Playboy. Crazy. Mike, how many times do you think they knocked over the lawn jockey? Mm, I could definitely come up with three times. Okay. Uh, So I'll say three. Uh, It's actually four. But good guess. Good guess. Uh, it was actually a real that uh, that recurring gag made me laugh every single time. It did me too, which is so funny because it's like such a simple thing, but yeah, it got me. It was effective because lawn jockeys are obnoxious. I think a little bit. <laughs> so watching it get knocked over, it was like the the people driving up to their house didn't have enough respect for this thing to not hit it. See, and I I take it like the feverishness of the season. Like everybody's always in such a freaking rush that they just like bash into it well the little nero's pizza guy when he comes raring down the street that <laughs> yeah. that holds like sequence made me laugh this time for the first time again because appreciating as like an adult like just like the idea that because he has to get there within 20 minutes where it's free and we know it's 122 dollars that he's looking to collect like he doesn't want to eat that money and he's coming like like uh meatloaf's bat out of hell coming down the street into their driveway so yeah it made me laugh really hard just filming scene wise because it's always interesting how movies get filmed the scene where kevin buys the the toothbrush where actually steals the toothbrush was actually the very first scene that was shot for the movie and the murphy's basement the underwater basement was actually the final scene shot for the movie and that underwater basement was actually filmed inside the pool at the new cheers high school where they filmed the majority of the interior shots for the movie they actually built a basement set at the shallow end of the pool with stairs coming up out of it which become the stairs that he finds the wet bandits waiting for him at the top of the stairs that was actually shot wild wild, right and and then the whole thing is set decorated and everything but it actually takes place in a pool uh at this high school that's so fun so you know how the car breaks down when the santa is is getting catherine Mm-hmm. almost home after he gets um, out tic tacs like everyone gets first seeing santa <laughs> so here's the thing santa's car really broke down it really did stall and that that was not like a like a purposeful thing it just happened and so they just went with it i love that. that i love that that was a real jalopy that that santa's it helper was. certainly was now how smart is this movie to handle the santa question i'm old enough to know how it works you're not santa but I know you work for him, and so can you get a message to him? I love that understanding of Santa Claus. Me too. And it, it's what, again, keeps this in the fantastic Christmas movie you can watch over and over again with any age person with you. So there, this is a this is a little bit of the practical magic of the movie, and how did they do that? 
so there's this scene where Kevin almost gets run over by the wet bandits. Uh, he's walking on the street. Uh, he's feeling down, right? Cause he had just stolen the toothbrush. He says, I'm a criminal. And the wet bandits almost run him over. And the, if you remember, he, they basically stopped the front of the van right at Kevin's nose. Do you know how they filmed that? No. They started with Kevin or, or Macaulay Culkin and the van nose to nose, like the end of the scene. And Macaulay Culkin walks backwards. The van backs up. That's how they recorded it. And then what we see in the movie is that scene filmed rolled backwards. Very cool. I love practical effects. And that way, it was a safer way, so Macaulay Culkin doesn't get run over. <laughs> <laughs> Very safe. Before you start thinking about your Jingle Bells, because we're just about done, uh, one thing we didn't really hit on was the very final scene of the movie. So it goes back to the beginning of our conversation about how Chris Columbus, when he took a pass at the script, he added in Old Man Marley and he added in kind of the really Christmassy themes that were missing from John Hughes's original script, which much was much just more of a the quote was a boisterous comedy. It didn't really have the family themes that would come to take up a large part of this movie aside from the violence this movie has a lot of heart in it and chris columbus's additions uh added that part of that was this new ending where old man marley we kevin sees him reunite with his son and he's holding his granddaughter and they share that wonderful little wave right outside the window i don't know about you uh, and this podcast definitely makes me sound like a big weeping baby, but that scene always <laughs> makes me tear up. I always get little goosebumps on my arm. I think it's a wonderful scene, the way he just gives a gentle wave and Kevin watching him the same way he had been watching Kevin the whole movie. I think it's very sweet. And you know, you don't have to be a baby if you if you get teary about people who are having a, a real emotional moment. I think it was I think it was truly heartfelt. And and that's again a, a huge part of this movie is that there is heart. It's not just slapstick silliness there is a story here and there is an arc and people do learn lessons and things do change you'll recall in that scene it's the first time there's actually real snowfall happening during the movie everyone agreed they needed real snow to be falling during the scene to make it to, to have the magic that they were going for and so there was a standing rule that should it begin to snow because when they began they actually began filming on valentine's day in 1990 february 14 1990 and it finished in may end of april or beginning of may uh the shooting finished so you would think chicago in february you're gonna get a lot of snow it actually happened to be kind of a warm time it was a warm a warm winter and snow was not in the forecast. So everyone was on alert, Caroline. If okay. there's snowfall, we're dropping whatever we're doing. Even if we're in the middle of filming something else, if it begins to snow, we're running over to the house where we were doing the exterior shots, the house that really exists, that the McAllisters live in. We're going to go over there. We're going to shoot the end scene because we got to take advantage of the snowfall. As it turns out, the skies open up and it begins to snow super heavy the second day of filming of the movie. The location scout uh, was talking about this in this documentary I was watching. She's talking about how everyone's beepers began to go off the morning of the second day. You know, snow is here. The snow is here. Get all the trucks <laughs> over there. So they run over there and they film the scene and they captured the magic. Now, it actually ended up being more snow than they even actually needed, but they weren't going to mess with it. They were so happy that they got any snow. But to augment it, they actually used mashed potato flakes to augment mm -hmm. the actual real snow. The problem was... After a few days, the mashed potato flakes kind of turned yellowish green and Ew. had like and gave, began to give off a horrible smell. 
So, uh, nice. so, so they got the magic and it worked out well for purposes of the movie, but not so much for the cleanup afterwards. <laughs> That's very funny. Practical effects gone awry. It happens. I have one more fast fact. Do you have another one that you want to give us before we go into Jingle Bells? So in May 2011, the house in Illinois used in the movie was listed for sale at $2.4 million, and it actually sold for $1.585 million. Can you believe it? Uh, that's, I mean, that's amazing. I mean, that house is gorgeous. For, honestly, for as big as it is and as, as large a yard as it I has. Think it's been, it was up for sale even more recently than that. Yeah, there's something to do with this family. This family that was actually in, that owned this house, this was the third time they were uh, uh, actually approached by a John Hughes production to use a house they lived in. Something wow. John John Hughes had a thing for this family, and the for they because of varying things. One time they had a house on the market, and they didn't want to take it off of the market for the film to shoot. Uh, it wasn't Home Alone. It was a prior film. They didn't want to take it off the market for the amount of time it would have to be off for them to shoot the movie there. So they turned them down. Then one time it was this new house, but they were doing renovations to it. They had to reject John Hughes's production offer again. Now, this, is the, this was the third time was a charm. They approached his family and they finally were able to get there and film film their house. So That's crazy. Yeah. Actually, in uh, recent years, uh, I don't know how many years ago, but for some years now, the house has actually been blurred out and the and the murphy's house and some other houses in this neighborhood have been blurred out from google maps because the traffic especially during the holiday times becomes unbearable people clogging up the streets trying to see the home alone house that's crazy so, so it's actually been like it's like area 51 from uh from uh, google <laughs> that's crazy yeah. So, so we talked a little bit about how big a movie this was and how we really, what a colossal mistake it was on Warner Brothers, not to, not to put up the extra $1.2 million that they walked away from over. Uh, this movie, when it came out, ended up being number one for guess how many, how many weeks do you think this movie was number one at the box office? It comes out in no, mid November, 1990. Okay. So this is from my commentary thing, just from my recollection. I feel like they said 16 weeks, but I don't remember. It was number one at the box office for 12 consecutive weeks. It stayed in the top 10, Caroline, through the end of April 1991. This movie stayed in the top 10 movies for six months. Wow. Six months. And then actually even it falls off right after Easter uh, at the end of April, beginning of May 1991, but actually would then pop back on to the top 10 charts twice more in 1991. This movie came out in November of 1990. It pops back into the top 10 at Memorial Day weekend and at Fourth of July weekend of 1991. This movie was a juggernaut. <laughs> Crazy. Crazy. Crazy how popular this was. I mean, at one point, it was like the third highest grossing movie of all time. Oh, wow. That's crazy, isn't it? Well, it was behind, it was just behind Star Wars and I forget the other one. It was like, the, yeah, it was the third highest grossing movie for, for a little bit of time. All right, guys, we're up to the part where we're going to do our Jingle Bells. But Caroline, do you want to hear the, do you want to take a guess at the movie we're playing next week? Yes, I would, please. All right, let's play this now. I think you're going to get this one. Okay. What's going on here? What's this? Find the true meaning of Christmas. Win money, money, money. Lights and display contest? Oh, no! My little dog got commercial. I can't stand it. Oh! 
He's so cute. My old dog got commercial. <laughs> I can't stand it. The true meaning of Christmas. Money, money, money. Oh, my God. So that's got to be Charlie Brown Christmas. The Charlie Brown Christmas is on the docket that's for next so week. cute. I love that. I love that. Y'all, we are going to get down to the meaning of Christmas. Finally, in week nine, of the, week nine of the podcast, Charlie Brown Christmas is going to teach all of us. It's going to take us all to school, want, want, want style, and teach us about the true meaning of <laughs> christmas <laughs> carolyn so i gotta tell you i gotta yes. tell you i've been holding off a 10 there have been some great movies we've already covered in this first eight weeks because because bang bang was not one of them but otherwise <laughs> i will throw shade on that movie for 52 weeks <laughs> there we've covered some classics it's a wonderful life miracle on 34th street elf home alone great hardcore classic movies right i've been holding off that 10 though you have. If there is a thing on this 52 weeks that gathers a 10, I'm just telling the bookies in Vegas, it may be a Charlie Brown Christmas. Oh, my goodness. Really? It is my absolute favorite. Oh, my goodness. Favorite Christmas-related property of my well, life. Well, you can say no more, sir. That is a good tease for next week, you guys, to see why does Mike love that movie so much? You're going to find out. But now we're going to give you our Jingle Ball ratings for Home Alone. Where you're coming in on week eight, <laughs> Home Alone. How many Jingle Bells are you giving it, Caroline, out of 10? To refresh, you gave Kiss Kiss Bang Bang one Jingle Bell last week. Correct, correct. Can, do you have on your on your thing what I've, what I've given other? Sure. So you have It's a Wonderful Life at eight, nine for Elf, a six to Happiest Season, Nine and a half Jingle Bells to Muppet Christmas Carol. Six Jingle Bells to Polar Express. Nine Jingle Bells to Miracle on 34th Street. One Jingle Bell to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Dang. Well, we're going to have like a jingle off at the end, I guess. Well, you know, I think there's going to be an opportunity for us to, you know, go back and review Okay. And and think and 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 contemplate noodle. and see if, and noodle because you know things will change after you've seen all of these because will change too over the course of the year who knows what will go on with us it's very true I mean people grow people change Mike Arbor Day Mike is probably not the same as just had a birthday Mike I'm just saying I'm That's I, very true. I'm expecting to change and right now we still have you know snow on the ground and we're going to be feeling very different come December next year I'm sure of it I'm sure of it too. Very exciting. Okay. I am going to give Home Alone nine and a quarter Jingle Bells. Whoa. I know. And I say that because several several reasons I have to back me up here. I think that the music and the setting of Christmas is undeniable. There's nothing even questionable about that. It's it's wonderful. I think that it's so like close to home in terms of like we all have families. We all have to deal with everybody at the Christmas time. And it just feels like there's something there that that family dynamic that just works for me so much. Kevin's like resourcefulness and just how funny and likable and everything he is like, again, like your grandma could watch this and be cracking up. But also your little kids can be watching this. That you can't say that for every movie. I mean, this doesn't go over anyone's head, but yet it still has enough complexity to keep you in there. That's a 9.25. So I expected to not rank this higher than at best even with Elf. Because in my brain, before going and sitting down and rewatching this and, and diving back into it, in my head, I like it 
on the same scale that I like Elf. A Christmas movie, a modern Christmas movie that I can watch over and over again, always enjoy and and, and always get something out of and, and doesn't feel stale to me. Uh, I gave Elf a nine. I'm going to give this a nine and a half. And I'll tell wow. you why. I, I okay. after after sitting with it and watching it again, this movie is 31 years old and still feels as relevant today as it did in 1990. 43 year old Mike appreciated maybe even more so than 12 year old Mike did at the Quartet Theater in Flushing Queens watching this movie. <laughs> it it holds up. It, it's not stale. The, you know the movie is really wise in how it doesn't unnecessarily date itself. You know it doesn't rely on technology things it, it, it the practical yeah. effects it, all of it aged well because it was all done in front of the camera and i think that makes a big difference and i think i appreciated it and it, it amused me the stuff that i remember being funny i still found funny the stuff that i fa- remember finding touching i found even more touching oh because now you're a dad and you have that side as well yeah yeah and you know as far as a christmas movie goes i think this is hitting a lot of the things that we're talking about it has family it talks about the importance of family it talks about the importance of reaching out to others at christmas time you know the the way old man marley and and kevin help each other and make each other better and help each other heal you know we didn't even talk about it there's a whole theory uh, with old man marley the beginning of the movie his hand is gnarly and wrapped in bandages as his as he interacts with kevin the the gnarly hand wound heals over the course of the movie so when he shakes hands with kevin the camera zooms in on the back of his hand and it's just now a band-aid at the end of the movie when he's holding his red-headed granddaughter and he's had this reunion with his son his hand is completely healed and it's only the next day there's a very literal healing going on here. I mean, talk about goodwill towards men. This movie's got it. It's got imagination. It's got wonder. It's got magic. It's got family. It's got heart. And it's got belief. And it also has a little like sprinkle of spirituality in this one that we didn't get in necessarily the other movies. You know, going to church and having that element of belief in each other and a belief in like a higher, you know, universal, like the mom was saying, like, this is Christmas and it's the perpetual season. I hope there's something about that that feels very spiritual as well, which just we don't get that in all these movies. We don't get that layered into like Elf. Even Elf isn't as Christmas a Christmas movie as Home Alone is. Elf is a great family movie and definitely speaks to family and all that, but is not as entwined among around Christmas, which is odd because it, it, it is about an elf and Santa Claus is, right. you know, whatever. Um, but I feel like Home Alone is more centrally tied to Christmas and the joyous themes of Christmas, maybe only surpassed or equal to Miracle on 34th Street, which I think has at its very core tenants the frame of mind of Christmas. Agreed. All right. Well, we did fantastic on this one. Yeah. Uh, really happy with this one. This was a really fun one. I'm, I I was looking forward to it. And I, I don't know about you. It paid, it, you know, some things don't age well. And I'm always worried when I go back to revisit things from my childhood, if I'm not going to like it the same. Uh, this one, I, I think I ended up liking even more. I agree. I agree because I think I can enjoy it now on all the different levels because I know how frantic I would be being that mom. First time I saw this, I didn't think anything about what it would be like to be the mom. I was thinking about, you know, setting up my traps and whatnot. So now I'm like, I can think about it from all POVs. And when you get a little junk candy, it's just the icing on the cake. Poka, poka, poka. 
<laughs> this is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Don't forget to go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. If you can leave us five stars, that would be fantastic so that we don't have to leave you home alone. <laughs> Kevin! Oh, my God. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.